Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your tremendous love and your mercy and, and watch care. And we ask that your spirit will join us, that we might learn of you. And we ask that your spirit will be working on the hearts and minds of people around this world who are open to, to be prepared to speak the truth about you in this time in human history, because we certainly want this message about you to lighten the world that you'll come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in the quarterly, the book of Job, and the title this week is Out of the Whirlwind, and the memory verse is uh, Job 38.4, which says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. What was the point of God's question? Was he trying to intimidate Job? Was he trying to say, look, I'm the creator, I'm powerful, I made everything, who are you to, you've been questioning me, who are you to question me? Is that what he was doing? By pointing to to creation? Or was God trying to enlighten Job with a legitimate question, which would lead Job to acknowledge that there's a lot Job doesn't understand about reality. Which do you think? Intimidation or a legitimate question to try to get Job to step back and go, wait, and maybe I haven't understood all this right. And if it's the second position that God is actually asking this question to get Job to step back and reprocess and rethink, what is the issue that he you think he might have wanted Job to reconsider by asking this specific question. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? There's a bigger perspective. Then your own personal situation here, there's a much bigger perspective of things going on. There's a bigger perspective, absolutely. And was there something specific about that perspective that he was trying to hone Job in on? And, And do you think God was remembering some of Job's arguments previously given by Job, which our lesson helpfully quotes for us in the first paragraph. So let's read the first paragraph, and you'll see one of Job's arguments. It says, Whatever their differences, the characters in the book of Job had one thing in common. Each had a lot to say about God, or at least about his understanding of God. And as we have seen, much of what they have said we could agree on. After all, who would argue with this? But now ask the beasts. And they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the uh, to the earth, and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain it to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all, and the breath of all mankind? And then it goes on to say, and this one: Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? See, the quotation, the first quotation there is from Job 12. And it's not one of Job's friends speaking. It's Job speaking. And what is Job saying to his friends when he says these things? See, Job's friends are arguing that Job deserved what happened to him. Job's friends are saying, look, all this bad stuff means you've sinned. You've messed up. You're wrong. And Job responds by saying, Look at the beasts and the birds. They'll teach you how reality works. The innocent and the harmless creatures are killed and destroyed by the predators just because they are innocent and harmless, not because they're sinful. Could Job be saying, look around. The world doesn't work like you say with only the sinful and guilty getting attacked and destroyed. No, the innocent creatures are harmed and killed all the time by the powerful the strong, and the ferocious. 
Isn't this what Job is saying to his friends? Look around. If you had a brain, nature would teach you how reality works. But then Job goes on to say this. Who among us, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? What is Job saying now? God created all of this, and he has a plan, a purpose. Mm. I don't think Job is simply saying God created nature. When he says, look at the animals, they'll teach you. In the context of arguing why this bad stuff's happening to him. I think Job is saying that God designed it this way. God is the one who designed survival the fittest, the, the predator killing the prey. The fear-based system is God's design. God's, God did this. This is how God built nature. This is how God governs. So don't look at me and suggest I'm sinning. It is God who created reality to work this way. That's what I think Job's saying here. Could it be, this is why God, immediately when he speaks to Job, the first thing he says, Job, were you there when I created the earth? Did you see how my creation functioned when I built it? You don't know what you're talking about, Job. Creation as you see it is not how I built it. There were intelligent beings there who did see how I created it, and they know, and they sang for joy when they saw it, because they know how things functioned on earth back then. And the death and the pain and destruction on earth today is not how I design life to operate. An enemy has infected my design, and is this infection which causes the pain and suffering. And it is the same enemy that has brought pain and suffering to your life, Job. So in other words, Job didn't really understand himself what God's plan was. I, uh, and we're going to get to that in a little bit in the lesson, but yes, I agree. I think Job... And when you, when you actually, when we unpack the rest of 38 through 40 in our lesson today, you're going to discover my view is that Job was just as wrong about God as the rest of them. And when you, when we find out, and we'll, we'll show you the text in a little bit. How could he have had such a close relationship and been such a, a good person and not understood God? And so what was it that made him a good person? Oh, I always thought it was his relationship with God. He believed in God. Yeah, he had faith. He said something. Even if it's contrary to what he thought, he believed in him. He trusted him. Hmm. Did Job just take the position, God said it, I believe it, don't ask any questions? Or do we find Job actually saying, God, this isn't right, I don't deserve this? Now, Job had a lot of misconceptions in his head, but Job knew God well enough, he knew God well enough, that he knew he could talk to him. He could... So I'm saying that when God did talk to him, he believed him. He, well, he, he, went out, he had, uh, said, where I'm a man of... You know, I, where was I thinking? You know, I, I and that's what we're going to get to in, when we get to... Chat, which is just a, a couple days down in our lesson. We will get to that. And this is exactly right. Once God has this dialogue, God speaks back and shows him what I just showed you. Job's response was... Wow, I had it wrong. Wow, I didn't understand. Wow, I have nothing left to say. And it was after that that God says, you have said of me what is right. He didn't say you said of me what is right until Job acknowledged everything he said previously wasn't worth speaking and wasn't right. So we'll get to that in a moment. The lesson also quotes, but, but the big piece here, if you look at it, when Job tells them, consider 
Look at the nature around you. Learn the lesson. Isn't he basically saying, the innocent get killed by the strong all the time. So you don't have to be guilty to be torn up and destroyed this way. In the world as God designed it and built it, that's what happens. The weak and the innocent get destroyed by the strong. Well, then did that mean that Job didn't understand that Satan was out there, the cause of sin and suffering that went on in the world? I think it's pretty clear he didn't have good understanding into that controversy behind the scenes. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear he didn't have good understanding of that. His buddies didn't either. Since at the end, they said his family and everybody consoled him over the trouble the Lord had brought him. Even after all of that, yep. they still thought that the Lord had brought all that on him. And so the big difference is Job's friends are saying it before chapter 38. Job's friends are saying God is inflicting this on you. Job is saying, no, he's not. This is just how God built reality to work. That's the big difference. He's not inflicting it. But this is how nature works, and God built it. And, and they were both wrong on that. All right. In the lesson, they also quote another one, which is Bildad speaking. Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? What is the implication of Bildad's question? Remember, he's asking the question in the context of trying to figure out why all this bad stuff happened to Job. And so in that context, it's not simply a general question that you come up with no background and no ideas in your mind, somebody is walking up on church on, on Sabbath or Sunday morning and saying, is, is God a God of justice? Is God, does God make mistakes in judgment? It's not just a general question about whether God does it. It's in a context. All this bad stuff's happening, Egypt, and, and basically we know God doesn't make mistakes in judgment. And we know he never is unjust. So what's the implication? You deserved it. That's what you say. So the questions in just as themselves, isn't it true that God never makes any mistakes in any of his judgments? He always judges everything right, whatever the judgment is. And he's never unjust. So those two statements are true. But how is it that even though those statements are true, they're used in a way to create a falsehood? And this is how subtle Satan is. Satan takes truths and makes falsehoods out of them. Both of these things are true, but, but Bildad creates a falsehood. What's the falsehood he creates? That God, who, never, who definitely doesn't make mistakes in judgment, and, and definitely is always just, is therefore the one who did this to you, and you deserved it, Job. See the falsehood built into that. And it's not just then, it's now, too. I mean, nowadays people think that the natural disasters we're seeing are punishments for sin and from God and all of that. So what caused Bildad, okay, good, what caused Bildad to have this error, even though he understood God's always just and, and God doesn't make any mistakes in judgment, he, he got that right, How, what caused him to apply that in a way to create a lie? What did he not understand that, that led him to, to take those two truths about God's character and imply something that wasn't true. What was he missing? Well, he, he, do you think he understood there was an enemy out there attacking? He didn't understand that. That's why he's putting it on God. God must be doing it. So he clearly didn't understand the enemy was out there. He didn't have that picture. But if you bring that up and say, well, an enemy's out there doing it. Now, we don't have any argument from Bill that. It's not recorded on this side. But my own experience, when, when I point this out to some folks, that there's an enemy who does things. They, they, I've actually had some Christians argue something like this back at me. Well, God still made the judgments to remove his protection. And even though God didn't actively bring the punishment to Job, God used Satan to punish him. 
Therefore, God was still responsible because God knew what would happen, and God chose to let it happen, so God punished Job. And Job did deserve it because Job was born in sin and conceived in iniquity, and all humans have no righteousness or goodness, and therefore the sinner deserves only punishment, suffering, and death. Therefore, if God chose to act in this way and use Satan to punishment, then then it was right and just on God's part. God is in control. Haven't you heard this line of reasoning? (laughs) This is all corrupted. It's not true. Remember, God removed his hand, but God did not control the choices Satan made. Satan was free to bless Job as he offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give to you, Jesus. He could have given all the people around here to give more Job, more wealth, and, and more power, and, and so forth. But he didn't do it. Yes? For me, one of the things that I think that Christianity as a whole is, and especially when you toss out the Old Testament, that when you go to the laws of God, restitution and ref- was always a part of it. It never was for, from a punishment standpoint, but it was to get you to see that you had done wrong and show you and meet you where you are so that you would change. Jesus himself said that if you have a sin against your brother and you're taking a gift to the altar, what were you supposed to do? You're supposed to set the gift down, go and make things right with your brother, and then come back and then give then the gift would be accepted. This wasn't a New Testament teaching. This was, this was throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament sanctuary. Time and time again, there was this principle of fairness and under- Reparations. Yes. And restorations. And yes. everything he does is for our benefit, is for a restoration to restore the image that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And until we come to understand that, that's what people think. And so, if hopefully you guys are tracking, because he's exactly right, but there's a core fundamental construct that is foundational to what you said that's different than to the argument made here, and that is what we've been talking about for years now, which law concept do you understand? The law concept you're describing is design law, bringing healing, bringing restoration, bringing people back to, to God's design and how he built relationships to do what we can to heal any brokenness we might have caused in somebody else's life. That's reparations, restoration. Okay? Um, this argument that I just read, this is all based on imperial human law constructs. Punishments have to be handed out. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Job 38, 1 and 2. Says, uh, and then and then asked, what happened here? Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, "Who, who is the that who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Who's speaking?" And this is this this version said from the storm. Some versions say from the whirlwind. Who's speaking from the whirlwind? And what is the question that is asked from the whirlwind? What is it implying and why is it asked? So who's speaking from the whirlwind? God is speaking from the whirlwind. And the the, uh, lesson is correct that this Hebrew word, sahar, also means whirlwind or storm. And in this context, God was found in the whirlwind or in the storm. And the lesson points out it's the same whirlwind that Elijah was taken up to heaven in. If you remember the whirlwind that they saw and Elijah was taken up to heaven in 1 Kings 19. But my, my, my mind thought of 1 Kings 19 as I was reading this. After Mount Carmel, he runs away. Elijah runs away. And if you remember in 1 Kings 19, 11, and 12, there was a strong wind. A powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks but the Lord was not in the wind. And I thought, I wondered, huh, 
Why was God in the whirlwind talking to Job, but he was not in the wind in the storm talking to Elijah? I found that interesting. And so I looked up the Hebrew, and the Hebrew in um, Job was this word storm or wind. The Hebrew in 1 Kings 19, though, was not the word sahar, storm or wind. It was the word ruach. Some of you may be familiar with that word. It's the word that also means spirit or wind or breath or breath of life. As in Genesis 6.17, regarding the flood, every creature on earth which has in it the breath of life, ruach, will die. And so here we have the ruach word tearing up the mountain, the wind, but God is not in it. What do you think that means? Why would the Bible writers choose the word that simply means storm for God to be in, but the word that means breath of life, God's not in? Is that kind of counterintuitive? So why do you think? What ideas? It's different characters of God. Have you ever heard context? Look at the context. Who's God speaking to in the book of Job when he's in the wind? Speaking to Job. And what are the issues we just talked about that Job is struggling with? Job has certain premises, certain assumptions about how nature works. And God means to set him straight on nature and how it works. Would it be important for God to establish with Job, if he's going to correct him about how nature works, that he can control nature? So you can understand why God approaches Job in the actual storm, and the actual wind. I'm the one who actually controls nature. You don't know how it works. I built it. And what you're saying isn't right. You weren't there at the beginning when the foundations were laid. But Elijah's mindset, what was Elijah's mindset? Where did he just come from? And what did he see at Mount Carmel? What happened at Mount Carmel? Well, the people slaughtered 450. Yeah, so that was the people. What did God do at Mount Carmel? What did they see? What did he see? Consumed his power. Power. Incredible power. Fire coming down from heaven. Not only burns up the offering, burns up the stones and laps up all the water. I mean, this was incredible power. Did, did Elijah have doubts about God being powerful? No. no, that wasn't something that he struggled with. Elijah already knew that God controlled nature because he prayed and three and a half years it didn't rain. There you go. Elijah didn't have that question about God. What was it that Elijah needed to learn? He wasn't in the storm. He wasn't in the fire. And he saw fire come down and destroy. But God wasn't in the fire. What's he learning here? Wasn't in the Ruach. What's he learning? Where, where did he find God? In the still, small voice, in the sound of the whisper. What do you think that's implying for, for Elijah? And, and you, know, you notice there's a big lesson here because what happens in Elijah's life shortly after this encounter where he figures out God's found in the whisper. Where did Elijah end up very shortly after that? In heaven. 
He, he was translated. Okay, that's where he, he was in the cave when this happened. Okay, so Elijah needed to learn that might and power and miracles, which God certainly has, because He's all powerful, He's almighty, He can perform miracles, is not evidence of truth, and it's not evidence of His character. Might and power and miracles can be counterfeited, but God's character is unassuming. It's not coercive. It's gentle. It's where we can come and talk. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, we white like snow. It's when the fear is put aside that we actually can open our minds and, and understand the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's the sound of the small. He had to understand that what God is working on, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord, that God isn't going to win it like he did at Carmel. And if you look at the history of the human race, every time he uses might and power, the flood. Shortly after the flood, they're building the Tower of Babel because they trust God or they don't trust him. They don't trust him. Um, the 10 plagues of Egypt, big, big power show there. 40 days later, they're building a golden calf because they trust God or don't trust God. Mount Carmel, after Mount Carmel, big show of power. Did, did the history of Israel after that, faithful and true, or back into rebellion. It, it's demonstrated might and power doesn't get what God wants. What gets what God wants? Truth. Revealed in love, leaving people free. Elijah needed to understand, we're not going to win this war. Why, what just happened at Carmel? It's the sound of the small whisper, the truth penetrating the heart. So you see why he's in, in, the, in the wind at one place, but he's not in the other. Monday's lesson, the lesson explores when God asks questions and points out, uh, the lesson points out in the second paragraph, the questions then, that God asks are not to teach the Lord something that he didn't already understand. Do we all agree that when God asks questions, he's not asking questions like we do, trying to actually come to new knowledge, uh, get uh, answers he didn't previously know? Is is that true? Or do we disagree? No, he asks questions because he needs to be informed. Now, we agree with that, don't we? Okay, if we agree with that, let me ask you, is there there anything that God doesn't already know and he needs to be educated about? Then how do you explain your explanation of Hebrews 4.15 and 16? For we know that we have a high priest who is, is, (coughs) excuse me, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. How have you heard this explained? You've never heard it explained? How have you heard it explained? Well, I have heard it explained that Christ had to suffer all these things so he would know what we had to experience and through by watching him how he would overcome. And there's slight truth in that, but the reality is is that that Christ went through it to show us. I mean, it, it, I, it probably didn't say it right, but he didn't have to go through it for him to learn. It was to build the trust. When I, when I look at the cross, I, I certainly accepted the idea of atonement in, in the beginning, at the, the covering. But the more you think about it, when you think about it in terms of the great cross, or excuse me, the great controversy, Christ didn't die because of, of, of what you call the penal model. How does that help? If, if that was the case, how then did the angels who remained loyal to him benefit from the cross? How did the unfallen worlds that, that are observing 
then benefit from the cross, if that was the message of the cross. To me, when I look at the message of the cross, the message of the cross is, I'm going to show you what true evil, selfishness looks like, and where it will lead you, and I'm going to show you what true love is. And we see that with Jesus willingly laying down his life. And when Satan had the opportunity, what did he do with it? And so we see the, the trueness, the fullness of that from that perspective. Um, when, when we see Christ in going through, it, to me it gives me hope because here's what the Redeemer is going through and, and it's a model for me then when I'm facing something similar, he says there's no temptation given that there is not a way out. So we have the example of Jesus and the example throughout entire scripture of how people have faced these issues and how God ultimately led them through it. Okay, so let's not get too far afield. A lot of good stuff just said, but I want to come back to our focus. The focus is, this, this passage, we just talked about, is there anything that God, speaking of the Father right now, and we can also talk about Jesus in a pre-incarnate state if you'd like, because they're fully God as well, didn't know that needed to be informed upon or learned something from. No. So this passage, for we... Do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Have you ever heard it taught that Jesus needed to become human so that he could learn how to sympathize with our weakness? And then he would go to heaven and as our intercessor, communicate to the Father what he learned. Father, you don't know how bad it is for them. I've suffered. I know what they've gone through. I know how hard temptation and sin is. I know the plight. I know the weakness. Father, be merciful. Be gracious. You've never heard this presented this way? Yeah. Yeah, so it's completely wrong. Thank you. It is completely wrong. (laughs) Okay? The Father didn't need education. Well, now it's a little bit different when we get to the Son. It's a little tricky. The Son and His pre-incarnate divine self also did not need education. But the Son took upon himself humanity. And his human nature did need to go through these experiences. In his human nature, to overcome as we overcome. I mean, to experience temptation as we experience temptation. His human nature, as a child born in Bethlehem, he did not know what this was like until he went through it. Didn't mean he didn't know what it was like in his divine self prior to incarnation. But as a child in Bethlehem, he did not know until he went through it. But what was the purpose of him going through it? Was it to inform God of something? No. It was not. Who, yes, and you can, see it in the, you can see it in the next verse. Verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. So after we know that we have this high priest who's been tempted in every way, yet without sin, what's the conclusion? Then let us. It doesn't say, then let the Father be merciful and show grace to those who are suffering doesn't say that. It says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. See, we were the ones who doubted God's goodness. We were the ones who doubted he could know. We were the ones who doubted he really felt the pain that we feel. And you get this a certain way. If somebody, if you've actually been in a place where you've lost a loved one, the tragedy here in Chattanooga this week, and if you went one to, the, went to one of those parents and said, I know how you feel, oh, you might get hit unless you've actually had a child die too. If you had a child die, you might be able to say that. See, this is, the, this is the point here. God says, I know what you're going through. I know how you feel. I know how hard it is. Without Christ, many of us might go, no, you don't. You're just saying that. You really don't. I, don't believe, I do not believe you. Even though he really does, we wouldn't have believed. 
So part of it was to really convince us and persuade us that he really does know. He really does. We don't have to doubt. In the back, somebody online? Why are we so afraid of the idea that God might actually learn something by our experience and by Christ's experience? Is anyone here? (laughs) Yeah, you know, uh, afraid. I don't know if afraid is the right word. It's uh, any more than um, we don't want to um, form beliefs that are not factual and not true. When we form beliefs that are not true, it leads us down pathways that are not in harmony with reality and how reality works. If we believe that God is all-knowing, knows then from the beginning, he, he doesn't learn from our experiences at all. Now, this is a debate. There's a, an open theism doctrine that's taught in certain circles in Christianity that God doesn't actually know until we choose. And it's when we choose that then God knows. But until then, he doesn't know. Okay, I, I reject that theory. I don't think there's really any... I get the reason they say that, because they're trying to preserve free will. They don't actually understand the difference between foreknowledge and causation. And thus they believe if God already knows, then he's already caused, and we have no choice, we're just programmed. But that's not how the universe works, and that's not really true. It's a false assumption. That false assumption leads to this conclusion, and then they try to limit God's abilities by saying he doesn't know until we choose. Yes? As human beings, we we grow on a scale of human, or rather, emotional intelligence. And certainly, I think there has to be some parallel with the the seven stages of spiritual development and stages of emotional development. And so often when we discuss these things, we we sort of love to stay and play in the semantics of it all because it, you know, one one word might mean so much to me and another word means so much to you. And I think it's kind of wallowing in a way as, as human beings to want to make sure everybody fully feels what I'm saying about how, how bad I felt about something. And, and I think that's a, a human need, the sense to, to feel connected, to feel understood, to feel validated. I think that, that is true. And I think part of Christ's mission was to connect in reality with humanity and convince us and persuade us that God really does know and there's nothing that we can ever go through that he isn't prepared to provide the resolution and solution and help for. That we don't have to doubt that. But without Christ's experience as a human being on earth, we would probably doubt that. Um, this question, does God need to be educated? What about the investigative judgment? Is the investigative judgment for God to investigate the records and look at the deeds, sins committed and the deeds done and the, and the legal applications of blood and blah, 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 blah. Is he, is he investigating records and determining guilt and innocence in the, in the, invest- is, is something that God needs? Yes. Well, anybody that's ever been a parent or been responsible for supervising people, I'll, I'll go to the parent. When you're trying to teach the child, you're going to ask them questions that are rhetorical for you. But what are you looking for? When a child does wrong, you don't want just a child to say, okay, yeah, I did wrong, but you need them to repeat back what they did wrong so that you know that they're actually grasping and understanding what they did wrong. And so to me, when I see God asking rhetorical questions like that, like, Adam, where are you, or were you, and stuff, to me, I see God is asking it. He already knows the answer, but he needs us to know it. And so it becomes rhetorical. It's rhetorical for sure. But he, we need to understand that. So that's how I view it. So what about the investigative judgment? Well, I, I think that God sees our character and how we become enlightened and that he reveals more to us. So as we grow towards him, he, he, 
to me, it seems to open up my mind to new stuff that he unlocks that which I couldn't have understood it five years ago. So what you guys are saying is, with regard to investigative judgment, it depends on where you are in your development. If you're a child in your development, level four and below, then the, then God needs to investigate because God has to be judged and he's got to make a determination and the judge decides. If you're a little more mature, you recognize that God doesn't need this at all. Intelligent beings need to come to realize how just God is in all of his dealings and that the people who are lost are only lost because they refused all the remedy and healing that God has been offering. Yeah. All right, so the lesson, not, I, you, you may pick up that once in a while, not often, but once in a while I'm critical of the lesson. <laughs> but I want to point out that the lesson was 100% correct <laughs> that God doesn't need information presented to him on any topic or subject. 100% correct. Okay. So then the lesson asks us to examine what was mentioned a moment ago, the purpose of these questions that God asks. And um, first one, Genesis 3.11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What is the purpose of the question? Think through. Think through the context. Who's, who's around when this question is asked? Satan? Do you think he was there, standing next to him? Was God's call? Hey, here's, here's my friend Lucifer, and uh, we'd just like to know. <laughs> you guys have already met. Yeah, you guys met earlier. Okay. Okay. But, but, but in the conversation, who's around? When God is saying to him, who told you that you're naked? What are the options here? So, 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 so what are the options for Adam on this answer? Well, I actually heard it from the CIA. <laughs> No, his options are very limited here, aren't they? Okay? And, and, and so the implication is, what's the implication? If God is saying, who told you you are naked, isn't it a statement of saying, you didn't hear it from me? Isn't that implied in the question? How'd you know? Who told you? I didn't tell you. You didn't hear from me. Did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? So a couple of very powerful implications from these questions. First is, hey, you didn't hear me condemning, me pointing out defects, me criticizing, me putting you in some scrutiny, putting you under the hot lamp in the interrogation room at the police department. That's not coming from me. Where's that coming from? It's your own conscience, Adam. Your own conscience is what's doing this to you. Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to. Now, what's the implication here? Cause and effect. You deviated from my design, and that's why. Nobody did this to you. You did this to yourself. I didn't condemn you. I'm not pointing out defects. I'm not causing you to fear, feel fear and run away. That's what happened... Because you broke my design, design law. Yeah. Well, when Nathan approached David, you were that man. David confessed, you're right, I'm wrong, he confessed. I think God was also, in this case, trying to elicit a confession from Adam. This is me, I did it, you're right, I'm wrong, but instead he threw Eve under the bus. No, no, this is exactly right. You're exactly right. That was the very next point. So first he has to get him to realize, you didn't hear me, I'm not condemning, did you do this, this is cause and effect, so that Adam will do exactly what you're saying. So Adam will say, 
I'm so sorry, Lord. I, I don't need to fear you. You're not against me. You're for me. This is something that I did to myself, and you warned me against it. Will you forgive me? I am so sorry. Yes, I, I agree completely. But wasn't it a progression to bring him to that point? Yeah. Genesis 4.9, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? The Lord didn't know. I've been looking for him. Can't find him anywhere. Or, so many people. It's so crowded. It's so crowded, yeah. <laughs> or did he know? So what was the point of the question? Was it to make, was it like that interrogation in the police department to make him, you know, feel, you know, legally responsible, to make him feel guilty, to make him feel horrible? Is this, is, or was it to bring him to repentance, to get him to take ownership? It was something in me, something in me flared. I had a temper. I lost control. I acted out selfishly and rashly. I've done something I feel horrible about. Oh, I wish I could take it back. It wasn't designed to get, get Cain to repent. That Cain didn't repent. So the question was for whose benefit? God's or Cain's? First Kings 19.9. This is the, the story of Elijah uh, in the cave. And God asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? That's the question. What's the context? Carmel just happened. Jezebel's mad. She's threatening to kill him. He runs away and hides in the cave. What are you doing here? What's the purpose of the question? To examine his motives. He trusted God on the mountain, but he didn't trust God now. Was it it designed to make Elijah feel called out, humiliated, embarrassed? No. No, I think you're right. Was it designed to get him to think, yeah, what am I doing here? (laughs) Why why am I here? Yeah, what what, what was the motive here? Um, What are my purposes? What am I trying to do? What's my goal for being here? Uh, I heard somebody saying that he was asking for God to you know, take my life away, you know, kill me. And he's like, why are you asking God to kill you? Uh, Jezebel wants to kill you and you run away from her, you know. So I thought it was kind of... So the question, did it lie designed to get to, maybe get to the point where he goes, have I forgot to trust God? Yes. Yeah. Acts 9.4. Saul fell on the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Do you think this was a surprise question? Surprise! It's me! <laughs> Did Saul know prior to this he was, he was actually persecuting God, the Son of God? Did he actually uh, understand that he was doing that? Or is this question designed to bring him to a reality to understand, hey, wait a second, you think you're working for God's cause, you're zealous for God's cause, but you're working against God. Saul's next question, who are you, Lord? Exactly. Yes, it was designed to get him to actually stop what he was doing, stop his mission for the Lord. As I've said before, there's not much more dangerous in the world than somebody on a mission for God who doesn't actually know God. (laughs) It's true. He was on a mission for God, didn't know who he was. Who are you? Wow. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And then Matthew 16, 13, Jesus says to uh, his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Was this Jesus wanting to find out what the, what the most recent gossip was, is in the community? What, what are people saying about me? It's no Facebook. Is this taking a poll? 
Hey, what's, what's the latest poll saying? Am I going to win or not? <laughs> Is that what Jesus was doing? Sending out his pollsters. What was the purpose of the question? To really find out what other people were thinking? Uh, he wanted to know what they were thinking, and he wanted to know if they were beginning to understand what he was teaching them. Did he want to know that? He wanted them to know. Yeah. Okay, all righty. Yes. He, so he wasn't asking because he needed to know. He was asking because he wanted to lead them to a decision point. They had seen enough evidence, but yet maybe they were still touring in their own mind. This could be the one. This could be the one. We think it's the one. We hope it's the one. We pray it's the one. Is it the one? And he wanted to bring them to a point they would choose. You are the one. Remember on the road to Emmaus, some of the disciples were going, we'd hoped this was the one. And so I think the purpose of the question was to bring them to that decision point. Make a decision. Am I the one or not? I have a question. How about when uh, Jesus said, you know, he performed a miracle, and he said to the person, don't tell anybody. Yeah. So what was the purpose for this? Because people, you know, you are excited about what Jesus just had. Multiple reasons, depending on the context. In some context, it was so that person wouldn't be kicked out by the local church authority. Go and have the priest declare the leper. Go and have the priest declare that you are, in fact, clean before, before you tell them. Because if you tell them I did it, they're going to deny the miracle and you're going to still be outcast from your family. You won't be reconciled back to your community. So it's because of the biases of the church leadership that don't, don't announce what's happened. Also, because it would restrict his movements. No, don't tell people I did this because he's, he's healing lepers and the Big mobs come and his movements are restricted and he can't go where he wants to go. And in fact, he had to pull back and, and move away. So it would limit some of the access and some of the teaching and plan that he wanted to do. But couldn't stop the people from telling others because they were excited about the good thing he done? He couldn't stop them. He could only give the wise instruction and then they had to choose to apply that to their life or not. Yes. Tuesday's lesson. The lesson asks us to read Job 38, 4 through 41 which is God speaking to Job, rather than reading the entire section, if you notice, all the way through chapter 41. Um, we'll read the verses, uh, excuse me, verses 41. We'll read uh, verses 31 through 33, just three verses, which kind of sum up the entire tenor of this section of Scripture. And this is uh, God speaking to Job, and it says, Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? And that's the basic tenor of the entire passage here. What is God saying to Job, and what are the purpose of his question? What is he trying to get Job to recognize? Look at the questions again. Think about it. What's he trying to get Job to see? Do you know the laws of the heavens, Job? Do you? Do you know the laws of the heavens? What are the, can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? What are the laws of the heavens? What kind of laws are those? Design laws, natural laws. They're the design laws. They're the laws upon which reality is built and constructed to operate. That's what he's saying. Understand, my universe doesn't work the way human governments work. God's saying, I'm the designer, and I didn't design life to operate the way you've experienced it. 
I built it. I sustain it. I hold it together. You don't comprehend how any of it was built, much less how it was designed to operate in the beginning. So all your conclusions are wrong. You need to think through a new paradigm, a new set of ideas, a new new premises, new facts. Realize that my laws are the laws of the universe. It's constructed to operate upon. There is nothing arbitrary in my laws. Pain and suffering come from deviations to my design. Earth was built as a paradise, perfect. And as I designed it, it would never experience pain and suffering and certainly no death. But Earth is not operating as I designed and antagonistic principles infected the creation and is causing the pain and the suffering and the death. Yet I I have undertaken the responsibility to heal and to restore my creation back to my original design, which means, Job, I must win you and other, my other intelligent creatures back to genuine love and trust in me. That's what it means. Very exciting stuff if you really read about it. Wednesday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, from, the, from our perspective today, it's easy to look at questions that uh, God has asked Job and realize how little man... A man like Job, living thousands of years ago, could understand about the created world. It wasn't until A.D. 1500s, for instance, that humans, at least some of them, finally understood that the motion of the sun in the sky was the result of the rotation of the earth on its axis and the reverse of the commonly held belief that the sun orbits around the earth, a truth that most of us take for granted today. Galileo, and Galileo was actually put through the Inquisition, and he was found guilty in, uh, in uh, 1633. I believe it was the date, he was found guilty, uh, and he was uh, confined in prison, confined to his home for the rest of his life, and died in 1642. Why? He dared to challenge the what did he say? The earth rotates around the sun. It can't be. Does the lesson really want us to believe that that knowledge was not available prior to the 1500s? Well, I don't know if it's specifically that example wasn't available, because I think um, if you look at, at the uh, Egyptians and many of the ancient cultures, they really were astronomers. Babylon, okay? Babylon, yeah, they, they, yeah, yeah, they had great astronomy. So I'm not sure that particular example, that's just an example of things in science that we've discovered. Coming understood. Yeah, that they didn't have uh, knowledge of. So They thought the moon was uh, perfect, smooth. Yes, and so when... The telescope was... Uh, designed and invented, it showed the irregular shapes of it, and of course that. And when Galileo suggested there were mountains on the moon, it was one one of the other elements besides just the exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So the question, though, that we want to focus on: How much better do we understand God and His laws today than Job did? That's the question. Do you think we today better understand God and His laws? A couple years ago, Andrews University, maybe you've heard of Andrews University, online magazine, published a critique of the book, The God-Shaped Brain. In the comment sections below the article, I was able to engage the author and the senior editor of the magazine in a discussion, which is still online. You can go online and read it. In one section, I brought up the truth about God's design laws, the God's laws being design laws. This is the response, and again, it's online today, and I put the link so you can go find it and look at it yourself if you'd like. This is the response from the senior editor who holds degrees in history and theology. Post it online. Violations of some laws, natural sciences, are immediate in their consequence. Don't eat. To restore energy, you die. But the Sabbath and other moral laws, 
not eating from the tree of knowledge, are arbitrary. Thus, some laws are natural and obvious, others are not. Not all of God's universe of laws is of equal or plain explanatory equivalency. We still don't know how the laws work in the quantum realm, for example. So some of God's laws do indeed require external enforcement by design. Others do not. Nature will be its own enforcer. If God hadn't cast Adam and Eve out, they would have kept eating from the tree of life, for example. But God chose to cast them out and then curse nature as well to aid us in learning certain lessons. What do you hear? Satan. There's a lot of confusion about authorship tonight. What I hear is is the missing of the transformation and the the fact that that we have fallen from God's character. I mean, what amazes me about this is, is we go to the sanctuary and we walk through the sanctuary and we talk about how there needs to be a transformation. We're critical as a community of faith um, to other churches that want to stop at the cross and say everything was finished at the cross and there was no there's no continual journey and we point to the sanctuary yet we can't see it in ourselves that we're teaching the exact same image. So the question here about the law, do you see a mixture? He mixes design law and impose law. Thus he presents this this particular view, which is the common view for many in our church leadership is that God is both designer and dictator. He's both. First, I just want to go through the points he's made first. One, God is the designer and the dictator. It is God is the ultimate source of inflicted pain and death, the ultimate punishment for sin. It puts God in the role of functioning like sinful human beings on certain laws that he says are arbitrary and God must use external power to enforce. Thus, he interprets God casting Adam and Eve out of Eden as punishment for sin, uh, inflicted upon them, and cursing the ground as further punishment for sin. So, let's look at that. Why did God cast Adam and Eve out? Was it to punish sin, or was the casting out actually one of the first acts in the plan of salvation, to heal and restore? Mercy. See, what would have happened? Think this through with me. Human beings now are infected with fear and selfishness. The earth groans under the weight of sin, Romans 8. Survival of the fittest drive is the primary drive that drives people to action now. Kill or be killed. This is the primary drive after Adam and Eve sins in the hearts of all creatures now on earth. What would have happened with creatures like that had access to the tree of life? They would not age. My understanding of what the tree of life does, it prevents aging, the gradual decay, the slow decline in vitality and function that leads to our first death here on earth. I suspect the tree of life would not have prevented Cain from crushing Abel's head with a rock. Okay, that wouldn't have been prevented. Murder would not have been prevented by the tree of life. Beheading people, nuclear explosions, would not have been beheaded. The laws of physics on their physical matter would still, putting someone in a fiery furnace, burning someone at the stake would have still happened. They just wouldn't have aged. Now, this is a fountain of youth, in other words. That's all it is. It's a physiological source of some type of nutrition that gives our body what it needs so it doesn't decay over time. That's my understanding of the tree of life. If that were still on planet Earth, who do you think would control it? The meek and the humble? (laughs) Is there any doubt in your mind that the selfish 
And the powerful would control it. And then think through, if that would have happened, look in Genesis chapter 6, without the tree of life on the earth, they come to a point where there's only one righteous man left on the whole earth. Violence filled the earth. Violence filled the earth and violence all the time. So they were restricted, not as an infliction of punishment, but it was a necessary restriction to permit the plan of salvation to be carried out in the first place. Ellen White goes far as to say it was Satan's plan that they would sin and then access the tree of life so they'd be an immortal sinner. That was his plan. So this was not an infliction. It was not a punishment. It was a mercy. Wouldn't that give credibility to the idea that there's a dual nature of humanity? In other words, that your soul will live forever even if your body dies? I, I don't know about that because they would have lived perpetually in the body. It might have disabused that idea because there wouldn't have been people needing to live outside the body. The idea of the mortal soul is, is the defense against the fear of death and dying. So you come up with this defense that, well, you're not really going to die. You're going to continue to live in a different state. But if the tree of, of life is still here and you can live forever in this state, then maybe people don't need to defend against that. The way we defend against the fear of dying is to get access to the tree. Yeah, but there's still that, that wild uh, concept called reincarnation. Which wouldn't happen if you never die. So that idea probably wouldn't have emerged either. <laughs> okay? All right, so, and then what about the cursing of the ground? This was not also, this also was not an infliction. Remember what, what the Bible teaches all through Scripture. Jesus said, um, you know, who did this? An enemy has done this. Has sown seeds, and the, the wheat is growing up with the tares. Who put the tares there? An enemy has done this. Paul says in Romans 8 that all nature groans under the weight of sin. Ellen White goes as far as to say that all thistles, all thorns, all noxious and poisonous plants were not in God's design or his original creation for earth, but these are amalgamations or mutations that have happened in nature since sin. So God was not inflicting a curse on the ground. He was simply pronouncing, diagnosing, announcing the reality. Adam, you've deviated from my design. All nature is now infected with this antagonistic principle, and it's going to be harder. The ground is going to bring up weeds and thistles and poisonous plants it never would have before. The ground is now cursed because of you. You've done this, Adam. It wasn't an infliction. But if you're operating with the false law paradigm, then you allege God is doing this. Doesn't it say cursed is the ground for your sake? Yes. And it depends depends on which translation, but that's the King James. Yeah. Cursed cursed is the ground for your sake, but others say because of you. Job, Thursday's lesson. There's a couple of really good points I'm going to get to still in the lesson. And we only have a few minutes left. Job... uh, fact, maybe I'm going to skip Thursday and we'll jump to Friday. And we haven't seen Friday in years. I know we haven't done Friday in years, so we'll do it there. It says, uh, first paragraph, which is quoting patriarchs and prophets. It says, God has permitted a flood of light to be poured upon the world in both science and art. And when, um, Professedly scientific men treat upon these subjects from a merely human point of view, they will assuredly come to wrong conclusions. It may be innocent to speculate beyond what God's word has revealed if our theories do not contradict facts about the scriptures, but those who leave the word of God and seek to account for his created works upon scientific principles are drifting without chart or compass upon the unknown oceans. The greatest minds, if not guided by the word of God in their search, become bewildered in their attempt to trace the relations of science and revelation. I'm going to stop there. It says, is the researching of science alone the reason many scientists have given up the belief in God? I'm going to suggest to you it's not. There is one other factor that has married together or merged together, unites together with the researching of science, and it's those two factors together that has led to the rejecting of God. 
And I'm going to submit that it's the advancing understanding of science with the historic, arbitrary, imposed law, dictator view of God, promulgated by most of the religions of the world, including the Christian church, that has led the scientists to reject God. Evidence for this assertion? In other words, they're rejecting a distorted, dictator, imperial view of God, a God who functions like Satan does. Evidence for this? Well, this is uh, 5 Testimony 738. From the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself, hyphen, meaning I'm going to list those principles. Now, here's the character of the evil one as arbitrary. Hmm. What did that theologian say from Andrews that God's laws are? Arbitrary. This is what Ellen White says is the nature of Satan. And you wonder why people reject God? Because we're presenting him as Satan. But I'll continue on. As arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving, that he might be feared and shunned and even hated by men. Satan hoped to confuse the minds of those whom he has deceived, that they would put God out of their knowledge. And then Review and Herald November 17, 1891, Satan has ascribed to God all the evils to which flesh is heir. He has represented him as a God who delights in the suffering of his creatures, who is revengeful and implacable. This is exactly how the Christian church presents God, a stern, a God of stern justice who has arbitrary laws, and I just read to you, our own university, which is the theological seminary for the Adventist church in North America, holds this position that God is arbitrary and has arbitrary laws. And you wonder why thinking people reject that concept of God. It is not true. It's not biblical. God is the creator. His laws are the laws upon which reality are built. And we, as the last day people, have the responsibility to lighten the world with a message of God's, God's true character of love that the scientists can go, wow, that makes sense because you know what? His laws are perfectly in harmony with how Scripture really reveals God to be. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We are thankful that you are a God of love who constructed all reality to operate in harmony with your nature. It is true that the minds of human beings have been infected with this imperialistic, imposed, arbitrary law concept that has so corrupted mankind that we would even kill other humans in your name. Lord, we ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and make us more effective as individuals and as as a group of us collective together who wants to share this message around the world that the avenue is open and the message will go forward and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.